Okay, we're live. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On today's show, I have a very special guest. He comes to us from Israel. He's just published a book in September 3rd, 2021. The title of the book is Holocaust Cinema Complete, a history and analysis of 400 films with a teaching guide. And his name is Rich Brownstein. And the, the book really comprises a very important part of post-World War II cinema, which is so many of these films, uh, many of which have uh, uh, you know, garnered many accolades, many of these films about the Holocaust, many that we know, Schindler's List. I learned a lot about this book, about films that I should be watching and some that I should avoid, but Rich Brownstein can talk more about that. So Mr. Brownstein, are you there? I am here. Awesome. Uh, well, thanks for, yeah, thanks for agreeing for, to the interview. Can you, for people may not, I know this is your first book. Can you talk about your background and what led you to compile this uh, history and analysis of 400 Holocaust films. Sure, and I'm really honored to be on your show. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Uh, so uh, I, uh, I'm, I lived in Los Angeles for 15 years, and I was involved in the movie business. Uh, and um, I <clears throat> created the largest transcription company in the world, well, no, we're in Los Angeles. Uh, and so if you ordered transcripts from uh, Nightline, that was my company. Uh, and I sold that in 2003 and moved to Israel. Uh, and the entire time I was um, studying, uh, learning about film and the Holocaust. And um, I became a professor of Holocaust and Jewish film here in Jerusalem. Uh, and really refined uh, what it was that I considered to be a Holocaust film and um, the pedagogical skills required for that. And uh, I eventually uh, became noticed at Yad Vashem, which is the World Center for Holocaust Learning. It's um, essentially the Vatican of Holocaust learning. Uh, and since 2014, I've been a lecturer there specializing in uh, the use of Holocaust films, especially in the classroom. Uh, and uh, I should say specifically, we're talking about narrative Holocaust films, not documentaries. So uh, anything from uh, The Pianist to Schindler's List to Jojo Rabbit. Right. And Utah, you say in your book, in your introductor, introduction, that these films are really kind of the introduction and the learning that people have about the Holocaust. And I think you mentioned Eli Wiesel says it's kind of an unfortunate, I don't know what he said verbatim, but it's unfortunate this is kind of people's introduction or inquiry into this horrific event, the Holocaust. Well, Eli Wiesel is, is, is a really interesting story about Holocaust films. Um, Nobel laureate uh, and um, he didn't know about films, but he uh, was uh, offended when the Holocaust miniseries uh, was broadcast on NBC uh, in 1978. And uh, he thought it was commercial uh, and that it was uh, poorly made and that it minimized. Uh, but he also felt like you could never represent adequately in film what happened in the Holocaust. He felt like uh, people who weren't there shouldn't be uh, writing about it also. And so he wrote a very um, harsh uh, 
uh, op-ed in the New York Times. And uh, he then, uh, 11 years later, when War and Remembrance uh, miniseries came out, he did it again, and he was even uh, more upset. And, um, but, but the, the reality is that he was right that most of these te early television productions were distasteful uh, on one hand, but on the other hand, as a direct result of the Holocaust miniseries uh, in 1978, uh, the uh, then president of the United States, Jimmy Carter, established uh, the United States uh, Holocaust Commission, which Elie Wiesel chaired. And as a result of, of the TV show and as a result of uh, that commission, the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum was created. Um, so uh, it, it's, it's true that Elie Wiesel didn't like these films, but it's equally true that these films have had more of an effect uh, on the world's understanding of the Holocaust than have Elie Wiesel's books or Anne Frank or, uh, or any textbook or any documentary. So whether you like them or not, they're here. And this is how people um, reinforce at the very least their understanding of the Holocaust. And can you, you spend time in your book kind of defining terms. Can you define kind of the use of the word show a Holocaust and how you parse through and actually compiled your list of films? Okay, well, um, for, from where I sit, um, Holocaust and Shoah are interchangeable. So Shoah is the Hebrew word for it. Um, and although there are some people who want to differentiate them, there, there, there is no practical differentiation for me. I, um, I split Holocaust films into four major categories. The first one is victim films. A victim Holocaust film, uh, like The Pianist, has a Jewish protagonist who suffers during the Holocaust. The second category are righteous Gentile films, where a Gentile during the Holocaust helps save Jews. So it's during the Holocaust, but a Gentile. So Schindler's, Schindler's, Schindler's List. Schindler's List is classic, yes. Then we have Jews who survived the Holocaust, uh, who are the protagonists after, usually long after the Holocaust. Um, and these are called survivor films. Uh, and uh, Harold and Maude is an example of it. Adam Resurrected uh, is another one. The, uh, so there, there are plenty of, of survivor films. And the fourth category are, non, are, are Nazis who long after the war have, uh, went, have gone into hiding, and these are uh, perpetrator films, and they're uh, universally uh, tracked down and killed in these films. Marathon Man, Boys from Brazil, uh, Remembrance. Then there's a bonus category, uh, a miscellaneous category that I call tangential. So you take a film like Sophie's Choice, where Sophie was a Polish woman she was not Jewish, uh, and but nobody would say that Sophie's Choice isn't a Holocaust film. Nonetheless, she's clearly not a victim because victims of the Holocaust, by definition, are Jewish. Uh, she's not a righteous Gentile, 
uh, she's not a perpetrator uh, and she's not a survivor because again, survivors of the Holocaust have to be Jewish. Um, but nonetheless, this is a Holocaust film. So this is the bonus tangential category where I also put uh, Inglorious Bastards uh, Cabaret, uh, which um, showed pre-war Germany. Um, so the, you can't discount these films, but they are Holocaust films. Right. So th it's a it's a pretty wide ranging group of films. What kind of, uh, you know, you talk about four eras of Holocaust films. Can you describe those eras to the listeners? Yeah, sure. Um, so um, post-war, after the war, when there was very little known about uh, the Holocaust, um, there were films that were coming out almost immediately. Orson Welles made a film a year after uh, Auschwitz th that was a, a perpetrator film where he played the, the Nazi who was... Um, uh, who, who had created a, a life of his own for himself in New England as a professor, and he gets uh, chased down. And um, uh, But these films, these post-war, so the first, I, I term this, 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 this era, the post-war Holocaust period, where uh, there was no television, they made mistakes, but they didn't know any better, uh, and they did the best they could. Um, Brando and uh, I mean, everybody was in these films. And this is when the first Anne Frank film was made, the famous Anne Frank 1959 uh, with George Stevens. Um, and there were a lot of Oscars that went to these films, too. A lot of celebrities, um, a lot of celebrities involved. I, I didn't wasn't aware of that until reading her book, how big that was right in the 50s. Some of the films I didn't know of him. Yeah. And and some people who who uh, were would be celebrities. I mean, like uh, in um, Judgment at Nuremberg, you had uh, William Shatner and uh, uh, Warner Klempner, who of course went on to be Colonel Clink uh, in Hogan's Heroes. But and Judy Garland was in it, uh, and uh, it, it was an enormous cast. Judgment at Nuremberg. Um, and, and then you get to, to where television starts to come in to Holocaust films. And, um, that's, that's in 1973. So, um, QB seven was the first real miniseries. Uh, it was based on a Leon Uris, uh, book. And um, it starred Anthony Hopkins uh, as a, 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 a Polish man who you would um, you weren't sure if he was a, a Nazi or not. And uh, he's put on trial, and and it was very gripping in nineteen uh, in, in nineteen seventy four. So this this period from nineteen seventy four to nineteen ninety. Uh, six is the commercial period, and that's also the period that Holocaust the miniseries came out and Schindler's List, uh, and again lots of Oscars, but a lot of television during this period too. And I and I include television uh, films as in in as part of the 443 films in my book. 
So in the first period, the post-war period, there were about three Holocaust films a year being made. And this is worldwide, not just in America. Everything I'm talking about is worldwide. Right. And you mentioned that, uh, sorry to interrupt, but 70% of the Holocaust films were outside of the U.S., correct? Right. Uh, and, and they were made uh, in, in the Soviet Union and they were made in Europe. Uh, been, they've been made in, in, in uh, East Asia, but mostly uh, Germany uh, and America, uh, but still over half were made not by Germany and not by America. Um, so during the commercial period, there were about six made every year. And then we graduate in 1997 to, until about 2013 to what I call the mature era, where about eight films are made a year. And that's really when the best films are made. Uh, really, they the, all of the lessons were learned about uh, fictionalizing stories that, that, that we really don't need fictionalized stories of death camps because we have so many true stories like life is beautiful that n nobody needed needed after that to see another fictional Holocaust story. Um, and, uh, and we had starting that period, we had really great films that were made like the pianist and, and the counterfeiters and the gray zone um, and fateless. Uh, and, and now since, uh, 2014, what I call the consolidated period where they're still coming out, there are more than 11 being made every year, but most of them are remakes of, of Holocaust films that have already been made. Very few of them are made for television. Um, and, um, it's just, basically a rehash and they're not great films that are coming out now there's there's some but most of them uh are regrettable right and i mean the, those the more recent ones are regrettable but the classic holocaust films garnered more academy awards and other awards worldwide as a proportion to the amount i think you mentioned in your book like i think it's twice the average of other films and in, in genres is that correct it's 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 a crazy amount of of Holocaust films uh, that that win Oscars. It's in in I'll get I'll get you the uh, specific specific uh, statistic that I mentioned in the book because I don't want to uh, I don't want to misstate it, but it, it's something like every other film got nominated. Right. Has every other American film, American Holocaust film that's been made has been nominated for at least one Oscar. Wonderful. Right. And so many, I think, well, how many did Schindler's List one win? Do you remember offhand? One seven. Yes. Uh, it was nominated for 12. Uh, but it didn't, um, it's not the record holder if you count. Uh, cabaret as a Holocaust film, which I do, which won eight. Uh, but of, of 77 American produced feature films, 21 have won or been nominated for at least one Oscar, which means that 27% of all American Holocaust films have been nominated for an Oscar, which is an, an outrageous, and, and, and they're also rated higher than um, than non-Holocaust films on IMDb. 
Right. So people are definitely, the public is definitely interested in that part of history. So, I mean, it's still reverberating to this day. And you have a section of your book where you talk about kind of the traits that you uh, garnered from watching or, or knowing about all these films. Can you talk about some of the uh, comparisons and similarities between these films? Um, between, between, well, you just say like you, you say that there's, there's like, uh, you talk about the non-American Holocaust film productions. You talk about sometimes that some of the exploitative, exploitative elements that are in some of these productions. Sure. sure. Um, I would say before, um, I don't think that I, I want to differentiate between, um, Oscars ratings on one hand and box office on the other hand because holocaust films do not make money uh very few have with the exception of schindler's list and the pianist and inglorious bastards th there are almost no 100 million dollar holocaust films so yes when you get to the academy and when you get to ratings people uh, like them but no, people don't flock to the box office to see them unless you're within a specific group. There are um, <clears throat> most many of the many Holocaust films are exploitative. So, um, take for example uh, the boy in the striped pajamas, the which is the only fictional death camp film that has been made since life is beautiful uh and the story is about a um nice man with a nice family who happens to get relocated to uh, a, a small town in poland because he is to become the the commander of this uh, german camp there called auschwitz and uh, and he has this little boy who uh, is so sweet, and the little boy goes and sees these people in what he thinks are striped pajamas, who who thinks he thinks are farmers, and he makes friends with these kids, with this kid, be, be with with electrified barbed wire between them, uh, and it's impossible. It's silly. It, it's it, and the story humanizes the nazis it makes you think oh these are such nice they're family men and and they all just love their kids and what's the point of course they were nice to to their own kids and and the, another one that's exploitative is the reader which tells a story uh it's kate winslet uh she she plays a post-war 1950s East German woman who can't read. She's illiterate. And she makes a deal with a guy, which I still quite un don't understand exactly what the how this transaction was equal, but he gets to read to her, and in return, they have sex all the time. And... Uh, we feel really bad for her because she's really good looking, but she's illiterate. And then we find out that in fact she had, um, she and her crew uh, during the war had locked 300 Jews in a barn 
and burnt it down. And she becomes, she goes on trial and she has to defend herself, but she's illiterate, so she can't. And so we're supposed to feel sorry for her because she can't defend herself. And it's preposterous. And and you kind of point that out in some of these films are trying to, they're deliberately trying to humanize or minimize the involvement of some of the perpetrators of the Holocaust. Would you agree with that? I think that's it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the, to minimize, I, I, I think that the, I, I think that, that I would say it like this, uh, most righteous Gentile films, uh, of which there are about 50, you get the, uh, belief watching them that you could walk out your door in Warsaw um, and turn left or turn right. You mu- you'll probably find somebody who, who will help you, a righteous Gentile, somebody who just knows that it's the right thing to do. When the chances of finding a righteous Gentile were, were astronomically low, one in 20,000, let's say. Uh, but you don't get that. You see a, a movie like... Um, uh, Arena Sendler, who who it, it's a nice movie, but nobody objected to helping Jews in that film. So their their lives were at risk if they were caught by the Germans. And these nice poles, okay, let's do it. Like that's the way it was. Uh, and of course, Schindler's List is is the ultimate expression of this. And, and I should say up front that. I have the greatest respect for Steven Spielberg. And he took all of the profit from Schindler's List and he donated it. He created the USC Shoah Foundation. Uh, He's a great philanthropist and he had uh, noble intentions when he made this film. Putting that aside, the film tells the story of the Holocaust through the eyes of a Nazi. The most, the, the most important Holocaust film ever made. And it's not about the victims of the Holocaust. It, it re, it's about rehabilitating somebody who worked as a Nazi <clears throat> uh, for eight years. The, through the, the, he, he was part of the planning of the invasion of Poland. He did not care went during the murder, well, the first five million of six million Jews were killed. And eventually he figured it out. And, uh, and why, is this, why is this the focus of a story? How, how, how do you, it's, it's, an, it's like, it's like if, you, if you see a, a, a story in the newspaper about somebody who smokes three packs of cigarettes a day turning 100 years old. What's the story? The story is that smoking doesn't kill you. It's only an interesting story because it's an anomaly, because it doesn't happen. Because this one Nazi who saved Jews doesn't happen. I've had people come to me and they say, yes, but it's a great story about personal redemption, that anybody can improve. And my answer to that is, if you're teaching the story of personal redemption, then it might be a good story. But if you're telling the story of the Holocaust, it is not the story. Right. And you also, I think you state in your book that a lot of the Jewish characters are kind of one dimensional. They're not really 
filled out as complete human beings in that story. It's just following Oscar Schindler around and that he's kind of become a little bit of a cele celebrity in Israel. People visit his tomb as kind of this kind of good guy, but he was a lot more nuanced than that. There was a lot of self-interest in his actions too, in real life, not in the yeah. film. Eventually, during the period that's really the saving period, he had given up all of his wealth to save the Jews. It's indisputable. That's fine. I, I mean, at one point, he becomes a good guy. But again, it's not the story. And yes, he is. Uh, people do go to his grave, as shown at the end of Schindler's List. You see his grave, uh, and you see Steven Spielberg's shadow there. Uh, during that scene, but it also implies that scene also implies falsely that without the Holocaust, there would be no Israel, that Israel exists because of the Holocaust, which uh, would be a surprise to the people who had been here uh, working, buying, fighting uh, for the 50 years before the Holocaust uh, through all of that. I'm not saying that the Holocaust wasn't a component of the UN partition of, of Israel uh, but or sympathy toward that. But uh, to say that, 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 which Spielberg implies at the end of that film, that Israel exists because of the Holocaust is really uh, in, inconsistent with history. There's a lot of history before World War II in what was formerly Palestine. No, no question about that. I mean, you, uh, you have these sections about kind of like, you think that these films can be used to teach people about the Holocaust. Can you talk about how you put together your curriculum and what the process would be to teach people about the Holocaust through these, uh, Holocaust films? Sure. So, um, <clears throat> the first thing I would say is that Holocaust films are um, a supplement. So we need to have basic Holocaust education. It, you can't just uh, sit somebody down and tell them that uh, you're going to learn about the Holocaust, just like you can't learn about uh, the Civil War by watching Lincoln. Um, it's a, we wish that we could, uh, but we can't. So uh, if, if you have a specific uh, part of the history of the war or of the Holocaust that you want to teach, then Holocaust films are, are very useful for that. So if you want somebody to try to understand what it was like to be in a death camp, then you show them a film about a death camp, but first you have, they have to understand what a death camp was and that it wasn't, um, it wasn't the summer camp and it wasn't what, what, what the Japanese Americans were in, in, in Manson, in California. And it wasn't, uh, what, what people, uh, want to imagine. So, if they have a foundation about these things, then you show them a Holocaust film and it can shore up those stories. And if you have specific stories, for example, there's a, a, a the, the, the precursor to the Holocaust in Germany was what was called the T4 program, where um, 
the Germans killed, handicapped, and um, they euthanized, um, I think, uh, over 100,000, maybe 135,000 Germans um, who were ultimately not deemed to be um, useful to society. And, um, and so there's a movie about that uh, called Amen. Um, so there are specific movies that tell specific stories that are useful. Uh, if you want to know the atmosphere that led up to the rise of uh, Hitlerism, Nazism, then Cabaret tells you that, that story beautifully. Uh, it, it doesn't sugarcoat any of it. Well, on the subject of sugarcoat, you kind of, uh, I was introduced to a film I should know. I'm embarrassed I dealt The Gray Zone. And you have an intro to your book from the director of The Gray Zone. His name is Tim Blake Nelson. And you set that aside as really being the one movie people should watch. Can you talk about The Gray Zone and how it's differentiated maybe from other Holocaust narratives? Yeah, um, <clears throat> sure. So, so Tim Blake Nelson... Uh, made a film called The Gray Zone. Uh, and in fact, its 20th anniversary uh, of uh, being released is 9-11. It was released uh, right, right when the towers were coming wow. down, which was uh, why nobody's ever heard of the film. Um, so Tim Blake Nelson uh, is known to most people uh, as an actor, uh, he was in the Coen brothers. Uh, he was, uh, Oh brother, where art thou? He was the brother who wasn't George Clooney and wasn't John Turturro. Uh, but he's been in uh, minority report and, um, a whole, a whole bunch of films. He's always, he was in the Watchmen, uh, a series that was on last year. Uh, and, uh, the Coen brothers, the ballad of Billy Scruggs. He was Billy Scruggs. Um, so he, uh, and he's a Jewish man from Tulsa, Oklahoma, who, uh, had read about the, um, people who, uh, um, worked in the, uh, in Auschwitz-Birkenau in the crematorium. The, the, the name of those are called Sando Commando or Zondo Commando. Th these Jews who for four months um, manned the, all aspects of the, of the death process, bringing people into the, the dressing rooms, getting them uh, undressed, getting them into the gas chambers, getting them out and burning them. And um, these people, uh, there, there are 13 groups of, of Zondo Commando uh, each four months. And they were all killed after four months. They knew that they were going to be killed, but they got to live and they got to eat better than the than other than, than the other prisoners because what they were doing was so horrific. And the gray zone tells the story of these people and their revolt. The last group of them that they had uh, there were four main gas chambers, uh, crematorium complexes at. Auschwitz-Birkenau, and these people uh, collected gunpowder and um, arms, and um, and they destroyed two of the four 
gas chambers. Uh, and the story was retold in Son of Saul, uh, which won the Academy Award for, for Best Foreign Language Film in, in 2015. But it's not, not nearly the same film as the original Gray Zone, which um, uh, the actors you'd recognize, Harvey Keitel plays a, a, the, the German commander, Steve Buscemi, David Arquette, uh, are in it, and they give the performances of their lives uh, as these tortured Jews. And I mean, it really, I think it, you differentiate that from some of the other films where it's really looking how stark, nihilistic, and grim it was for those people at the end of their lives. Would you agree with that? And it seems like people, some of these other films want to shy away from really taking a hard look at that. There's no happy ending in the gray zone. Um, the, the gas chambers are destroyed, but nobody survives. Uh, it's not a spoiler alert. That nobody, uh, people not surviving the Holocaust is the story of the Holocaust. Um, you don't have uh, somebody, a, a kid riding out on an, on an American tank like you do in Life is Beautiful. Um, you don't have a happy ending. Uh, and the violence, it is violent. Uh, the gray zone is, but the violence is shown impersonally. That this is just the way it is. Everybody who was there was mistreated uh, because that's just the way it was. Uh, go ahead. Well, it's just is really incredible. I mean, the history of the Holocaust. There weren't really that many Jews in in Germany at the time, but when the Germans invaded, that's where a lot of those people lived. So. It's just like so, you know, somebody came over the border, and it's just an incredible time. I mean, it still reverberates to this day. I have a friend here in LA whose dad had the tattoo. You know, he had the number numerical tattoo on his arm. He uh, escaped, but like, there's, there's the. It's still reverberating. So it's very important for people to watch these films and and understand that they cannot be forgotten. These events cannot be forgotten. So I definitely. Uh, commend you for putting together this book so people can watch all this stuff. And there's so many more stories and, and stuff left in the book. You really go through, I mean, the last part of the book has all of these films kind of put down. But, I mean, just to wrap up or summarize, other than The Gray Zone, what do you recommend? What do you think is the best way to approach these films? And what, what films do you recommend people watch? So, um, <clears throat> I, I in in... The final chapter of my book, I recommend 52 films. And uh, of those 52, I highly recommend 15, which is three in each of the five categories. Uh, and in that recommendation in the book, I uh, spell out exactly the order of, that I would show them if I were teaching a college class, which I've done. Um, uh, the order that I would show these films. And I would start uh, with the pre-war films, like film like Cabaret, and build through uh, the Righteous Gentile films and the then the Survivor films, and finally the, the um, perpetrator films uh, where the, the Nazis are, are killed. I would say specifically, though, um, 
that The Counterfeiters is uh, an amazing film about a program that the Germans had in Sachsenhausen concentration camp where they uh, took uh, uh, prisoners who, who were known to be criminals and had a counterfeiting program where they um, made the British currency and flooded banks uh, throughout the world with enough currency that it would be the, a quarter of all British reserves. Um, they also counterfeited dollars, but uh, it's the story of these prisoners uh, on the one hand cooperating, on the other hand sabotaging this program and outliving the um, program. That, 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 and in most of these films, most great uh, films, you get to that point of liberation where all of a sudden the person who has the star and is a Jew uh, is the only thing standing between the Nazi and a, 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 a Russian bullet. Um, in that case, it was it was the West that, that that liberated the camp. But that moment of liberation is so fascinating when it's done in, in films. Um, and then another film that is is masterfully done is called Fateless, which is about a um, uh, Hungarian boy who makes it to several camps and survives them. And how he survives is uh, th there are a dozen films about boys, kids who survived the Holocaust. Um, some are good, some are bad, but this is the best uh, of those. Um, as far as survivor films, um, the classic one, which uh, most people don't realize is, is, is a survivor film, is called Harold and Maude, uh, which um, you only know it's a, that, that, that the woman was a Holocaust survivor from a half second where they show her Auschwitz tattoo. Uh, but other than that, you wouldn't have any idea. Uh, well, she talks about her life back in Vienna, but still you wouldn't know. Um, and also, I should say, um, especially in regard to your friend whose father had a, a tattoo, um, that tattoos were only in Auschwitz, Auschwitz-Birkenau. And some films show people who are tattooed who clearly were not in that camp. Um, so these little things, you start to, you, you do learn uh, some things about the Holocaust from watching the films. Um, in that particular case, um, I went on to Wikipedia and changed it from their entry about Maud's tattoo from a concentration camp tattoo to Auschwitz tattoo because there really was only only in Auschwitz tattoo. is that it? Oh wow! Right. Wow. Well, he, he had. I mean, according to my friend, his father escaped and became a kind of counterfeiter. He was forging documents, helping people kind of get out and get around there. So he passed away recently, but he was. I mean, he was there. I mean, it's pretty odd. Ten years ago, talking about him, somebody who was really a Holocaust survivor, a young man. But uh, so the films you recommend are Harold and Maude, The Counterfeiters, The Gray Zone. What was the other one? Fate, Fateless is, Fateless, is highly recommended. Because I'll put those um, in the show notes. Yeah. There's, a, there's a great, uh, 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 the, the, there's a survivor film 
which is really uh, the ultimate survivor film, one of a kind, uh, called The Birch Tree Meadow, which um, very few people have seen, uh, that uh, a woman late in her life uh, decides that she's going to go back to Birkenau, to Auschwitz, to see it. Uh, of course, it's a museum now, but but it's but you can you can walk in. It's gigantic, and she did. She slips through the barbed wire and looks around at what's there now, and uh, and it she she walks on the coals that all other films dance around. She she faces her memories. Uh, they don't go through flashbacks. She just deals with revisiting the camp. Uh, and again, if this were the only survivor film that were ever that was ever made then it would be good enough it is yeah. it is that great wow okay i'll put uh, that in the show notes uh, and um and another wonderful film um is called phoenix uh, a german film uh about a survivor uh it's it's a it, it, it's from 2014 and one of the reasons that it's a fascinating film is because it's a remake of a 1965 film called Return from the Ashes. The exact same story, uh, but uh, just seeing the, the difference in filmmaking uh, teaches so much about the advancement of, of cinema and storytelling. Uh, but it's about a woman who is disfigured during the war and a Jewish woman. She comes back, she goes back after the war as she's healing, but still disfigured, uh, and tries to find her husband, who is a scoundrel. And <clears throat> he doesn't recognize her. And he wants this woman who's, who's similar to his wife uh, to sign the papers to give him the estate. Uh, and uh, the question is, is he ever going to figure out that this woman is actually his wife. Uh, uh, and um, I, I, I think that for people who really love film, that's, that is a, a film lover's film. It's a good one. And so, the pianist, too, of course, yeah, is, of course is so right. wonderful. That's much better now, which I've seen. That's a good one. Um, right. So I deal a lot with the pianist, but only from the standpoint, mostly from the standpoint of how do you watch a Holocaust film that... Uh, theoretically is about morality made by a rapist, Roman Polanski. Uh, are we capable of learning from the opportunity of discussing uh, art within the context of the artist that made it? Right. So he, I was take also, it he was also a Holocaust survivor, is my understanding, like he escaped the camp too. Totally, he 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 totally. The, the the story of the pianist is very is very close to his story, absolutely. And and uh, so it provides all kinds of that that film provides all kinds of opportunities for for learning. Right. And uh, is there anything you'd like to add, or anything I missed before we wrap up the discussion about your book? Uh, no, I, um, I, I, I think we've covered, uh, a, a good 1% of it. And, good. Uh, I know there's a lot more left. <laughs> I highly recommend people go look through because a lot of people have worked on the subject. So there's a lot of, I mean, I've learned a lot just looking through this book and there's movies I definitely want to see. I've never heard the gray zone. So I'm really delighted to, uh, have you on the show and also learn from this book. Again, the title of the book is 
Holocaust Cinema Complete, a history and analysis of 400 films with a teaching guide by Rich Brownstein. Rich Brownstein, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much. It was an honor to be on your oh, show. That's great. I really appreciate it. Stay there. I'm going to just end the broadcast.